You're listening to Beyond Infinity, your weekly dose of science and technology, presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. Piers Cunningham taking you through where we're going to talk about climate change. So I thought it was particularly appropriate to revisit the interviews that we did back in 2016, four years ago, with Professor David Caroli, who was at the time at Melbourne University and is now at the CSIRO. He is a world-leading climatologist. Uh, He was involved in the Paris Agreement in formulating the terms of that. A very passionate believer in uh, the need to take climate change seriously uh, and to understand the effects and, and, uh, and understand the consequences for inaction and how Australia is a particularly vulnerable country as evidenced by the bushfires that we've experienced. Some of the figures are amazing in terms of the scale and the area of damage. Uh, more than 11.4 million hectares, which is 28 million acres, have been blackened. That's about 1.5% of the country's land area, an expanse greater than the size of Scotland. More than half of the area burned is in the southeastern states of New South Wales and Victoria, and it's mainly dense native vegetation, forests and national parks, as opposed to crop-growing farmland and areas of intensive agriculture. Not to say that they haven't been affected. Fewer than 100 dairy farms have been uh, burned out, and these include areas in uh, Victoria's East Gippsland and the Bega Valley in uh, New South Wales. There's also been issues with power outages, and some dairy farms have been forced to throw milk away because they haven't been able to keep it refrigerated and therefore you know, saleable. In terms of meat and livestock, 2.5 million hectares have been raised in New South Wales and Queensland. These are key red meat producers in Australia. The full extent is yet to become known, but the latest information is that 9% of the national cattle herd live in regions that have been significantly impacted and a further 11% in regions partially impacted. Losses of about 1.7 million sheep and 450,000 head of cattle are likely. That's according to an analyst at Mercado by the name of Matt Dalgleish. Now that would result in a 2.4% reduction in the national sheep flock and a 1.8% drop in the total cattle population in 2020. About 13% of Australia's national sheep flock uh, are in areas that have been significantly impacted by bushfire and a further 17% in regions partially impacted. That's according to Meat and Livestock Australia. There is no question that wildfires will reduce Australia's wool production, which has actually been declining in recent years because of drought. The output of shorn wool is forecast to drop by 9.2% to 272 million kilograms in 2019-2020. Wine has been affected. It's a big crop in Australia, very widespread. South Australia, Victoria, Western Australia, New South Wales are all areas where it's grown. About 1,500 hectares of vineyards are within fire-affected regions. These account for about 1% of Australia's total vineyard area. So there will be some impact, but uh, it's not great. Before Christmas, there were fires in the Adelaide Hills that wiped out some vineyards there. Honey production is expected to be quite badly affected by bushfires and also by drought with reduced pollen and nectar, and that'll make it harder for some crop producers who rely on bees for pollination. In New South Wales, honey production is expected to be 30% below the historical average for the next 10 years. 
large cropping areas in Australia have uh, mostly escaped fire damage. According to Rabobank, in eastern Victoria, the uh, bank expects the loss of fodder and stored grains as well as widespread pasture loss. There's over $700 million that's already been claimed for property damage from insurance companies. This figure is expected to rise significantly and there's a $2 billion fund that's been set up by the federal government to help the recovery process following bushfires. So what are the impacts of human-induced climate change? We've got David Caroli from Melbourne University. We've also got Ian Storey from RMIT and Graham Hannigan from Citizens for Science. And in the studio also is John Young from Young Digital Group. My name's Piers Cunningham. We've been thrashing out climate change and having explained by a real expert. And I think there's been quite a bit here that's pretty staggering. We've kind of been sitting there with our jaws on the ground a bit. What are the effects of human-induced climate change? And I guess what would also be a good thing to tie in with that is, can we bring it back to the Mornington Peninsula? How's it going to affect people down here and what sort of timeframes would apply? Sure. And look, we could spend a week or a year talking about the impacts and the, the uncertainties and the timescales. Mm. But the best way to think about this is that climate change affects all aspects of the climate system, but the easiest and clearest signals is that it's leading to a warming of the climate. And the warming of the climate leads to increases in sea level. We've already seen nearly a degree of warming in Australia, which doesn't sound like much. A degree temperature change in a room, you won't notice it. But a degree temperature change in your body means you're sick. Mm. And a two or three degree temperature change in your body, three degrees means you're very close to dead. Mm-hmm. It's a fever and it's a, an enormous fever. When we're talking about temperature change on Earth, one degree doesn't sound like much, but it leads to many, many different debates. It means marked increases in hot extremes, marked reductions in cold extremes. They have major impacts on agriculture, have major impacts on human health, have major impacts on animal health, have major impacts on flowering plants, have major impacts on a range of different ecosystems and in the Mornington Peninsula have major impacts on frequency of bushfires. So we've seen in the Mornington Peninsula over the last 10 and 20 years major increases in the frequency of hot extremes, major increases in the frequency of extreme fire danger conditions, much earlier flowering of plants, the wattles flowering much earlier in winter, Mm. the growing season has changed. We also see what's happening is increases in sea level. And over the last 100 years, we've had about 25 to 30 centimetres of sea level rise already. 20 centimetres over the 20th century, and it just depends on which base period you start at. What's projected for the current century, the end of the 21st century, is of the order of one metre more sea level rise. Whereas that used to be considered an extreme estimate in the most recent IPCC assessment, it was relatively mid-range estimate. Hmm. And that's for average sea level. But average sea level doesn't cause the destruction and erosion on coastline. It's actually storms which cause strong winds and cause storm surges, waves and storm surges. And those are what cause the erosion on Port Phillip Bay, coastline and in Western Port Bay coastline, as well as throughout Gippsland Lakes and Western Victoria. So there's already been major increases in erosion along the coastline, all 
around Victoria and particularly on many areas of the Mornington Peninsula, particularly in Western Port Bay. So you're saying that the sea level's risen, so you get more insertion of, of water onto land when you have a storm than you did before the sea level had risen. That's right. Yep. And so what we used to call might be extreme sea level, what was usually talked about was, say, a one-in-a-hundred-year storm surge event. That one-in-a-hundred-year storm surge event associated with sea level rise, at, say, in... 50 years time will become a one in 10 year event and in a hundred years time will become a one in two year event in many locations along the Mornington Peninsula. In other words, something that you were aiming would happen only once in a hundred years will happen every other year in terms of storm surge and flooding impacts along most of Western Port and much of the Mornington Peninsula, including all the beachside areas like Port Phillip Bay, coastal areas in Dramana and Port Sea Beach and, and things like that. So there will be impacts in many different areas. So you're saying that climate change is going to lead to an increase in the frequency of extreme weather of one form or another, and then that is going to make the effects of sea level rise from melting yep. poles primarily, I guess. Yep. That That's going to exasperate that problem. It is. It's not, not all extreme events get more extreme. In fact, we do know that one of the causes of the reductions in rainfall in Victoria over the last 20 or 30 years is that, in fact, the low-pressure systems, what we used to get in wintertime were strong low-pressure systems. They're still happening, but they're happening further south. They're happening more commonly over the ocean. That right. What we call the storm track, the roaring 40s, hmm. is now the roaring 41s or 42s. It's a bit further south. Now, it's not actually a 41 and 42 because the roaring 40s happened between sort of 40 south and 50 south, but it's moved a little bit further away the coast or away from the southern parts of Australia, and we're now getting less rain in winter than we used to. This is a particularly affecting southern Victoria, but it's also affecting the southwest of Western Australia and Tasmania. We're getting much less rainfall in winter over the last 20 or 30 years. So that's another major impact, is less rainfall in winter, and that's affecting our water resources, our water storage system, and affecting agriculture as well. Okay. Can I ask, uh, because I know this is your particular area as well, at the moment we're maybe in the middle or at the tail end of the uh, one of the extreme El Nino events. So how does that compare to what we consider climate change and yep. human-induced human climate, climate change? Yeah, yeah look, El Nino has existed. It's a natural fluctuation in the ocean temperatures in the Pacific Ocean, particularly the tropical Pacific Ocean, that then leads to reductions in rainfall and hotter temperatures in much of eastern Australia. El Nino, from data we can see from South America in terms of fish skeletons and debris and things like that, El Nino has probably existed for the last 7,000 years. Not exactly the same intensity and same frequency, we expect that El Nino and La Nina, these sorts of natural flood drought cycles in Australia, will continue. We expect that they'll probably get a bit stronger, not because El Nino and La Nina, the opposite phase, get stronger, but because their impact will get stronger. When it's dry in Australia, if it's hotter, things will dry out faster. When it's wet, if it's hotter, there'll be more moisture in the atmosphere the air will actually be on average more humid. So when it rains, we expect more extreme rainfall. So when it's dry, it's drier. When it's hot, it's hotter. And the rainfall is even heavier. 
Why is it that you said that they can look back and see the El Nino La Nina yeah. cycle for over 7,000 years? Is that only because they've looked that far back? Or, yeah, or is it's it... only because they've looked that far right. back. So would you'd assume that actually that cycle had been going on for even much, much longer? Probably, but the data isn't good enough to say really at this stage how long it's existed. There okay. is some indication that maybe there was a gap. The data is not as good. We don't know for sure hmm. whether it you know, started 7,000 years ago. There are indications that the El Nino is dependent upon the existence of certain, if you like, ocean currents in the Indonesian region and that these currents depend upon the sea level and the existence of the warm ocean waters in the region to the north of Australia. So it is possible that El Nino didn't exist. Okay. It's also possible that it did. And we don't know well enough because that region to the north of Australia is a very complex region of islands. Yep. I want to maybe tie something in with the El Nino discussion. Yep. And something that I, I do hear quite regularly now, it seems to be the last bastion of hope for the, the denialist, if you will, is that back in 97, we had a strong El Nino, one of the top three, I think it was, or top five. The, the, and, actually, the strongest. 97-98, the strongest in the last 120 years. So that coupled with increasing climate change, we had above average temperatures, things on the increase. However, even though we've been adding carbon dioxide and other things to the atmosphere, they argue, the Denos argue, that we've been fairly stable with temperatures since 97. In some cases, it's flatlined and not grown. So two part. Uh, one, because we're going through this El Nino at the moment, which is quite strong, do we expect to see quite a jump in the, the temperatures? And how is all this connected? And why, why is there the argument? And can it be believed that there is some flatlining with this, these temperature change yeah. over time? Again, there are lots of parts to that question. First of all, El Nino, with warmer temperatures in the tropical Pacific Ocean, is associated with release of heat from the ocean into the atmosphere. And its opposite phase, La Nina, with cold temperatures in the ocean, is changes in deep ocean circulation and ocean circulation in the Pacific leads to more uptake of heat into the ocean. So what this is really doing is an exchange of heat between the ocean and the atmosphere. An important point is that, in fact, associated with human-caused climate change, most of the heat is stored in the ocean. More than 90% of the heat added to the climate system over the last 100 years has gone into warming up the ocean. It's a big mass of water. It stores a lot of heat. El Nino is a way for that heat to be released. La Nina is an enhancement of the heat to be stored in the ocean. So when we look at global temperatures, the release from the ocean of heat associated with an El Nino event in the atmosphere, cause an increase of global temperatures a little bit after the peak in the El Nino. Global climate starts to warm around the time of the El Nino, and then it peaks three to six months after the peak in the El Nino. Now, the 97 El Nino was actually a 97-98 El Nino. The cycle of El Ninos is they start around May of one year, in this case 97, and finish in March, April the following year. The current El Nino started in May of 2015. There was an aborted El Nino in 2014. It didn't reach full strength. It wasn't really, it's not declared as an El Nino, but there were slightly warmer temperatures. 2015, May, the El Nino started. It was declared an El Nino in July or August. It's continued and strengthened until now. It's just at its peak now and is starting to wane. 
And most scientists are predicting that it will wane over the next three months, probably disappear by March, April this year. The rainfall conditions, in Australia at least, will return to more normal. In fact, often when a strong El Nino disappears, Australia gets hit with heavy rain. I'm not confidently making that prediction, but there will likely be areas of heavy rainfall mm. in the autumn period. Now, before I, I just want to finish one thing on this. When we look at 97, 98 in terms of global temperatures, it's the year 98 that was a record high temperature until we came to the next El Nino, 2010. Well, another strong El Nino, 2010. Let's set a new record in terms of global temperatures. 2015 El Nino set a new record of temperatures. 2015 was a substantial couple of tenths of a degree warmer than 2014 because of the El Nino. But actually, the El Nino is only peaking now. We expect 2016 to be another couple of tenths of a degree warmer again. And actually, 2015 is nearly half a degree warmer than 1997. And 1997 is the most comparable year. 2015 is warmer, but only just warmer than 1998. But the best comparison will be 2016 compared to 1998. So will that then show that it hasn't flatlined? Or it, it... Well, you know, again, depends on what you mean by flatlining. But if we look at the average, we look at one year, it's a bit like picking one hot yep. year one day. Yep. Well, we're going to look at averages. So we look at the 10 years around the 1990s, mm -hmm. and then we look at the 10 years of the 2000s. Yep. It's between about a tenth of a degree warmer. We look at the last, most recent 10 years, it's more again. So 1990s compared with the 2006 to 2015 period, it's two tenths of a degree warmer. Okay, let's let's climate move, has warmed. Let's move on a bit. Australia is a low overall emitter of carbon dioxide in comparison to other big industrial countries such as China, India, the United States. Can we make any real difference by changing to carbon neutral activities if other countries continue business as usual or even increase emissions? Yeah. Look, that's a really important question hmm. and there are a lot of nuances to that question sure. as well. Yep. The first thing we've got to think about is, yes, it's the total global contributions or emissions of greenhouse gases that are important for determining the changes in climate. And what scientists have looked at is what sorts of future emissions would limit warming to only two degrees above pre-industrial levels? Because the governments around the world have concluded and agreed that limiting warming to only two degrees above pre-industrial levels would be the best way of avoiding dangerous climate change. So where are we at? We're about 1.5? We're, we're one degree above pre-industrial okay. at present. Yep. So we're halfway there. But remember, but an we've got enough greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to already exceed two degrees if we remove the particles. And we're still emitting more and more carbon dioxide. So, so the particles over those cities, which give you that, that yep. protection from yep. the sun and reduce the temperatures, yep. if you stop, if you reduce the emissions, yep. then you're going to those uh, heat up. You're going to heat up those areas. Yeah, exactly. Because what happens is those particles are really short-lived. Every time it rains, mm. you get cleaner air, mm. and so those particles have a typical lifetime of a week or thereabouts. You know, somewhere between one day and two weeks. When we talk about carbon dioxide, 
the natural processes to remove carbon dioxide take a very, very long time. It's no simple lifetime. It does get cycled around, mm. but if we wanted the concentration to be removed, reduced back to pre-industrial levels, it would take about 10,000 years for natural processes to reduce carbon dioxide to the level it was pre-industrial. Right. That's a pretty long time. Yeah. So, so if we if we stopped emitting, it just completely stopped. For some reason, we yep. could flick the switch off. Yep. We've still got enough carbon in the atmosphere, and this is going to cause harm for ten thousand plus years. Yes, or longer. Or longer. But you know, ten thousand years is probably a good enough estimate. It's a bit longer than most political so, parties so, are looking at well, at present. But is the argument maybe from your perspective? Yeah. Uh, I know you're doing the research side of things, but I also know that you're involved in certain activities. Uh, is the argument about trying to prevent? further climate change or manage it? Because aren't we not in yeah. a situation where it's just about how we manage yeah. this increase? Okay, so you're absolutely right. What we have to do is avoid the unmanageable climate change. In other words, we have to avoid the most extreme warming levels, but we have to also manage the unavoidable climate change that is already committed by the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere already. So what we have to think about is both adapting to current and projected climate change due to the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere already. That's climate change adaptation. That means coping with extreme temperatures, coping with sea level rise, coping with changes in agriculture, coping with more bushfires, as well as, as quickly as possible, reducing greenhouse gas emissions so that we don't have ongoing temperature rise above two degrees I mean, of that was, that was what I was going to... If you can say that it's 10,000 years, if you, if you stopped uh, all emissions now, it's going to still be around for 10,000 years. If you continue, yep. then you presumably you're talking... You hundreds more of, and more warning. You're talking... Um, no, no, it turns out that the, the level, the timescale, mm. because we're doing this over only 100 years, mm. it will still only take, you know, might only be 11 or 12 or 20,000 okay. years. Okay. To, it, it reduces... You know, it depends on the magnitude of the change. But you'll be reducing the temperatures with unabated climate change. We're looking at six degrees of global warming mm. associated with, if you like, digging up most of the fossil fuels that are already existing and burning them. What we have to do if we're going to avoid two degrees of climate change is make sure that about 80% of existing fossil fuel reserves stay unburned and in the ground. And for Australia, we have to make sure that more than 90% of our existing Australian coal and natural gas reserves stay in the ground. Why more for Australia? Well, why more? Because Australia's got more as a percentage oh, okay. of our okay. countries. Okay. We've got lots of coal. We've got lots of natural gas. We're not planning to burn it all in Australia. We're actually digging it up and trying to... Sorry. Some people are digging it up and trying to make money selling it overseas. But actually, that's a bit like the cocaine dealer growing cocaine or making cocaine and selling it as a money-making concern, knowing the dangers of cocaine to drug addicts elsewhere. There are certainly countries that are mm. willing to buy the coal, mm. but we know it's a dangerous product. It causes climate change. Mm. And we don't in Australia usually support the sale of dangerous products overseas. Well, we sell yellow cake. 
We do. We also know that yellow cake is a dangerous product as well mm. if it's not treated properly. And that's another, well, that's another question which I'll come to if we've got time a bit later, what your attitude to nuclear power is because it it's, doesn't have the same carbon effect on the world. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. But I guess the reason why I asked that question about if Australia is expected yep. to do something, then the rest of the world, the big emitters, China, India, US, yep. need to be seen to be doing something as well also, because otherwise, you know, we're, we're 1%, I think, roughly of the world's greenhouse emitters. So on a per capita base, we're high, but we have a low population. Well, okay, let's look at that. So this Australia, is a political question. It's sort of how do you, how do you, I reckon there's resistance. It's, it's in as it. much an ethical question. Yeah. So the first thing we have to look at is when we look at global emissions, we have what we call a carbon budget that we cannot exceed if we're to avoid two degrees of global warming. It's not a, a fixed amount, but the best estimate is to have a high probability of avoiding two degrees of global warming, this level that was agreed to by global governments, there's a limit to how much carbon dioxide can be emitted into the atmosphere. Well, one way to think of that is, well, okay, a fair way of allocating that, if you're going to allocate chocolate cake to everyone in the world or even to everyone in the studio here, you'd probably give everyone the same slice, the same personal allocation. That's why per-person emissions having equal per-person emissions of greenhouse gases is a fair way of thinking about the allocation. So, at the moment, Australia has the highest per capita emissions of any developed country in the world. Higher emissions than the United States, higher emissions than Canada, higher emissions than European countries. That's That's unfair. Is that because we don't have nuclear? That's not because we don't have nuclear. It's because we have old, inefficient coal-fired power stations and we haven't wanted to reduce our fossil fuel use because it's provided cheap electricity. There's been no incentive until recently to reduce Australian greenhouse gas emissions, despite the fact that actually 20 years ago, the Australian government and the Liberal Party in opposition had a policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions substantially. Mm. But it dropped that policy as soon as it was in, became in government. So let's look at what's fair for Australia. Well, that's tough, but even with the current government's commitment to reduce emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2030, Australia would still have the highest per capita emissions of any developed country in the world. If other developed countries honoured their commitments to reduce emissions, Australia's per capita emissions would be higher than in China, and they are dramatically higher than in China, dramatically higher than in India at present. So even though China's got the largest emissions, it's got a dramatically higher population than Australia. So Australia's population is third of a percent of global population and we're making 1.3 percent of global emissions Mm. so we're emitting four times disproportionately higher than our fair share of global emissions that's because of old technologies of burning coal and burning oil and inefficient cars and deforestation and inefficient industry 
all of those sorts of things. You're right, if we had more nuclear power, we would reduce our emissions to some extent. But for a long time, Australia has made decisions. The Australian population has made decisions they didn't want to have nuclear power. We can look at countries like the UK, larger population than Australia, Germany, larger population than Australia, total emissions less than in Australia. Now. Now. Wow. Germany is phasing out nuclear power. Yeah, but they're going to still, well, on German soil, they're going to import it. They probably are, but Australia imports, well, sorry, Victoria imports electricity mostly from Tasmania, except when there's a drought in Tasmania. And that's because Tasmania's got hydroelectric power. Mm. I um, had a look once at how much energy is produced by nuclear power, and it's actually not that much. It's very, very, you know, industrially intensive, very, very costly to produce. You need a lot of power plants to rival coal. It would seem to me, in fact, that just the use of solar panels is becoming more practical than nuclear power. Yeah, look, there are lots of aspects of, you know, consideration of nuclear power in Australia as an energy source. First of all, Australia doesn't have an established nuclear industry. Mm. Um, so it will take a long time to actually have the expertise, do the safety checks and things like that. The other thing that's been demonstrated in Germany and in Japan recently is that the safety costs are likely much higher than were originally estimated. Mm. And then the decommissioning of nuclear plants in a safe way mm. dramatically increases the costs of nuclear power stations. So if you then look at the costs of building and safely disposing, mm. not just of the waste, but the nuclear power plant when it gets decommissioned in 50 or 100 years, the costs end up being as expensive as most renewable energy sources, more expensive than solar panels and things like that. So the other aspect of this, and this is what I like to talk about, is that climate change due to increasing carbon dioxide is essentially a waste disposal problem. Burning fossil fuels, the waste, the carbon dioxide, has been dumped into the atmosphere. And we're now suffering the consequences. We know it's a 10,000-year waste disposal problem. That's still a long time. Mm. Disposing of nuclear waste mm. is a 100,000-year waste disposal problem. And I'm not sure it's a good idea to replace a 10,000-year waste disposal problem with a 100,000-year waste but, disposal but can, problem. But you can concentrate it into one place. You're not spread. It doesn't have to be spread through the whole atmosphere. Absolutely, that's correct, but you've got to do it safely, and it's not clear that you can do it mm. safely over 100,000 years without natural disasters yeah, like yeah. the Fukushima. I, I, yep. I agree with that, uh, and um, if they find nuclear fusion and it's safe, I'd be completely in favour of it. But one point that niggles at the back of my brain when I think about nuclear fusion is the temptation would then be to use enormous amounts of power, generating enormous amounts of heat. I don't know if that would have much yeah. ecological effect. But. Look, I don't know of the heat capacity, but it's a really important point that you're making, and it's related to increases in human population, fair shares and consumption. Climate change is, if you like, a response to the Industrial Revolution. But there are many countries in the world that don't have the same level of greenhouse gas emissions countries like China, greenhouse gas emissions per person, because they're developing countries. They haven't had the energy availability. Their populations are high. Mm. Part of the reason for the increase in emissions in countries like Australia, United States, 
Europe has been growth in population, but the main reason has been the growth in consumption. The use of fossil fuel generated electricity to power our economy, to drive our cars, smartphones, smartphones, and- TVs, yep. radios. Yes, it's everything. Demand driven. It has been demand driven, but there are actually many ways that have been demonstrated in the last 20 years that you can have just as efficient and established modern society with less than half the energy consumption. Australian buildings are incredibly poorly insulated. There's been no requirements to have efficient engines in our cars. There's been no requirement to have electric trains, which are much more efficient transport than trucks or aeroplanes. Australia, because it's had cheap electricity, hasn't needed to reduce its consumption of electricity. But the really interesting thing is that as the price of electricity has increased, partly because of distribution costs, partly because of the carbon pricing mechanism, consumption of electricity in Australian homes and in Australian businesses has fallen. A lot. A lot. Mm. While the economy has grown in the last five Mm. years. So so it can be done. So it can be done. There was just no expectation and no requirement for that in Australia. It's also happened in many other parts of the world. So reduction in use, Mm. reduction in consumption is critically important. We don't need to have as many TVs, as many cars. We need to use a wide range of approaches to reduce consumption and to improve energy efficiency in Australia. And we will still have a very, how would I say, satisfactory lifestyle. In fact, there are many people who say that by walking or using public transport or having distributed electricity generation, you will have a much more community approach and a healthier lifestyle because you're not avoiding exercise, you're actually getting out into the fresh air and you're walking. There are many ways that you can reduce emissions and have a better lifestyle. We've gone through quite a big science class today. We haven't got much time left, but I do want to just hopefully finish on this one last point. One thing that I tend to notice as a layperson in this, I look at all sources of climate information, whether it's human-induced or otherwise. Today has certainly convinced me of the case that it is definitely human-induced, that we are the cause. But it does appear to be that this issue is heavily politicised. You've got more than 97% of scientists that study this area, according to the IPCC, agree that it's human-induced climate change. Yet we have media commentators which cause doubt. And then that leaves the public, which still considers there's potentially a debate that's going on. So what is the message for our listeners? What is the message? And how do we make it so that we can educate people to really understand the science? In many topics where there is business interests and funding, the profit motive often drives an attempt to delay science evidence-based information from reaching out to the community. So we can look at asbestos mine in Australia and James Hardy Industries, major company. The evidence that asbestos was bad for human health was well known in the United Kingdom from medical studies in the 1930s. But that evidence didn't stop James Hardy making a lot of money digging up and making asbestos products. And now throughout Australia, there are ongoing problems with asbestos using building products. 
Tobacco smoking. The impacts of tobacco on human health have been known, were known for decades, but the tobacco companies spread doubt by spreading misinformation. It is certainly the case that 97% of peer-reviewed scientific studies on climate change and its causes show that human-caused climate change is the dominant factor affecting current climate. There are one or two that debate that, but often they're strange studies. 97% of active climate scientists also agree. Depends. And those are based on published peer-reviewed studies. It's not the IPCC who says that. If we look at all the scientific academies, national science academies around the world, they all agree that human-caused climate change is happening. However, when you go to the media and commentators in Australia, there's a range of different perspectives. Rupert Murdoch, owner of the largest newspaper chain in Australia, says there's no link between human emissions and climate change, and his newspapers say the same thing. Why? That's probably a political perspective for Rupert Murdoch. For mining companies in Australia, there is clearly, for coal mining, a profit motive, and they have put funding into a number of pseudo-scientists or real scientists that have retired, mainly retired male scientists, to commentate on this. And they have had often as much coverage as the hundreds of scientists in the Bureau of Meteorology or CSIRO in the universities that are actively studying this area. So there's been an attempt to provide balance in some of the media coverage by having one scientist from working on climate change and another person who's a skeptic or a denier. That's balance leads to bias in the coverage. It doesn't accurately represent it. There are a number of studies that show or a number of reports that show that funding from the United States and funding from mining companies has supported a range of these skeptics. The best thing for individuals to do is to look at the comprehensive assessments either by the Australian Academy of Science or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the Royal Society in the UK or the US National Academy of Science. They all have relatively easy to understand question and answer documents, which you can look at and essentially get the best scientific answers to common questions about climate change. I think for it to be seen as fair, and that's a, that's a theme that's sort of come up a bit because it is to do with individual responsibility and, and different countries have different bases that they're starting on from now in dealing with human-induced climate change. But I get the impression that as far as Australians are concerned, they're not ignoring the science and they're not completely influenced by vested interests, although they may well be. I get the feeling that they need to see the rest of the world acting in a clear way in concert before they feel that it's fair for them to be making sacrifices and paying either taxes or seeing what the country has survived on and relied on for its development, fossil fuels, yep. resources, to see those things sacrificed or changed with a view to improving the world's climate. That's the feeling I get because we are a small, and I, and I take what you said before about we've been very inefficient and we've, we've had cheap electricity and we haven't questioned that. I accept that. But I do get the feeling, I don't know what the other people in the studio Graham or Ian, think about that. But I get the feeling that there is resistance because the rest of the world is not seen to be acting clearly in concert. Well, let me just say that it's clear that it's developed countries 
who've been the major contributor, the global assessment and the Kyoto Protocol, which was the first global agreement on this, said that developed countries need to act. And most developed countries have reduced their emissions more than Australia has. So Australia is in fact a laggard Mm. on this. Mm. Australia's emissions grew from 1990 levels to 2005. Australia has grown its emissions. The United States has grown them as well, but most European countries, most other developed countries have not grown their emissions. So in that sense, Australia is not acting as rapidly as other developed countries. Australia is a laggard on that perspective. The other point is also we have to be careful about requiring all other countries to act because there's a big difference between developed and developing countries. If you look at developing countries, they have not contributed nearly as much to this problem. Remembering that carbon Mm. dioxide is a long-lived issue, Australia's had the benefits of that for the last 100 years. We shouldn't then stop development. We need to provide assistance to developing countries to develop, to get their energy, but to get it from renewable energy. And that requires funding and technological support. And there are lots of ways that that can be done rather than just saying, well, we need to export coal to India or coal to China. There are efficient and inexpensive ways to provide electricity through solar power and wind power and tidal power. They can be done not just in Australia, but in many other countries as well. Ian, have you got any last questions? Um, Graham? One question that keeps popping up in my mind is we've got an enormous world population which is growing still exponentially. China was able to, to do something about it, but I feel like it was an incredibly obtrusive measure, one child per family. Yet it was a solution to a problem that is getting worse you know, every day. The population is denuding the environment at an enormous rate. Agriculture is leading to desertification. And I, I wonder about your opinion on this. And just one thing I would like to ask in particular is in the Middle East, that was the cradle of agriculture and now it's a desert. The rate at which topsoil comes back, in one area there, there was a 50-year break and the topsoil came back at one sixteenth of an inch over 50 years, and yet the, the soil gets washed away, it, it goes into the sea, it, it goes into the air. Could you comment on how you see the future for agriculture? I share your optimism that we might actually do something about climate change. There's still a, a brick wall coming up with population and desertification. There are probably lots of brick walls coming up. Water resources is another critical issue. But so... Coming to population, population is a major issue. It is much easier to provide energy and food and water for a smaller population than a larger population. In an environmentally sustainable way. In in an environmentally sustainable way. It is clear, however, that population is going to continue to grow. We currently have a population just over 7 billion. Best estimates are that it will grow to 10 billion by 2050, Whether it stabilises at 10 billion or continues to grow will depend to a large extent on the penetration of education as well as, if you like, governmental controls on birth rates and things like that. But education for women and the availability of contraceptives is critically important in influencing the rate of growth of population. But 
as much as that, consumption and the increasing consumption of water and of food is just as important for agriculture. And so the growth of population and the growth of demand for the amount of food, the number of calories, even in developed countries, is remarkable. How many calories or kilojoules the average Australian consume now compared with 40 years ago is dramatically higher. And that's one of the reasons why Australia has an obesity epidemic. This is not just a, a problem for Australia, but it's also a problem for the whole world. Coming back to agriculture, climate change will be an adverse impact for agriculture, but also another major concern for agriculture is just the point that you raised, that agricultural practices have led to deforestation, have led to reduction in soil fertility, have led to reduction in soil carbon content. There is recognition of this in many parts of the world, including some parts of Australia, but it's not clear that some of the large mega farms that exist are, well, either care or want to be sustainable on a long timescale. And so thinking about agricultural sustainability as well as environmental sustainability in a changing climate uh, is a very complex question. I can't answer that. It's kind of a, a philosophical change that's required in people's thinking around the world, really, in, in consumerism, in, in the type of food that people are eating, the, the habits that people have. You know, in LA, people have there's two cars for every one person and all that sort of stuff. It's basically a philosophical change to the approach to living, how big a family you have. Yes, and you're absolutely right. Part of that philosophy should be about how do you want your children and your grandchildren mm. to live, mm. as well as how you live. Because how you live, how much you consume, how much you use will determine to some extent, often to a large extent, the economy, the community and the climate that your children and your grandchildren will experience. And if we want to have healthy food, clean water, sufficient energy and a safe climate, we need to think about all of those issues together. Think about consumption. And it's clear that, you know, one of the parts of the modern economy is to drive us to buy more. Whereas many people would argue that their parents or grandparents, that life in the 60s or life even earlier than that, was actually as much fun and just as healthy mm. as now. In fact, in many ways, when you didn't have obesity and kids could play on the streets and you didn't have to look at your iPhone every minute to check on social media and you didn't have to have... on, I love my iPhone. <laughs> well, so do I, but you don't have to check it every few minutes and you don't have to upgrade it every year. In fact, the other, I guess, aspect of this is building things to live and survive and work for 10 or 20 years lifetimes rather than having to buy something new to meet the latest fashion yeah. is something that's an, also an important philosophical perspective. Yep, it's consumerism. 
mass consumerism. The easiest way to avoid mass consumerism is to ban all advertising. That won't necessarily get make me popular. <laughs> a, a topic for another day. <laughs> It'd be I hard think, yeah. to sell things. <laughs> uh, Graham, have you got any, any uh, last thoughts before we wind it up? David, a fascinating discussion. It's just a massive topic. My own interests are, as a landowner, uh, one of 18,000 around Western Port who can expect <clears throat> by the year 2100 that our land will be underwater. The federal state governments are backing away from any sort of compensation plans quickly, leaving the baby, the local shires holding the baby. Shires giving approval for building developments in full knowledge that the land will be underwater in 2100. What are those landowners going to do when they, they find they can't sell their land? It's another, could can, be, but what I'd be it's another can of worms. Yeah, no, no, it's not. I would be recommending you're not going to get any money out of taking legal action against the government, but take legal action against coal-fired power stations and do it now. We know they've caused sea level rise. We know what the contribution is, and other companies are doing it, but they have to be Australian companies and be involved in stopping coal mines throughout Australia. So legal action and the threats is what stopped tobacco. So legal action, and there are a number of groups and lawyers that are happy to help you on with that. Oh, good. All right, well, thank you very much to David Caroli and, and the other studio guests, Graham Hannigan and Dr Ian Storey and John Young. Thanks for being here today. Fantastic presentation. Yeah, yeah great, absolutely. great presentation. Sure. And I thought we were having a conversation, not a presentation. Well, it's, it is a conversation. Kind of was. You took over. <laughs> You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.